Hi, welcome to Infill, where we discuss local San Francisco politics and policy. Today, it's Laura Clark of Grow San Francisco, Brian Hanlon of the California I Never Get This Right, California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund, or CARLA, and Sonia Trous of the Bay Area Renters Federation. Hello. And um, we are going to hold off for a little bit on discussing the big tragedy of our time and first talk about local election results. Um, We'll start at the top of our ticket, um, which was Scott Wiener, who did successfully run for state Senate. So he is off to the state house. So again, we're not talking about that awful thing that shall not be named right now. We were on the party bus um, going around to the, the various uh, parties from the that our slate endorsed. I never even went into the Scott Wiener one. And Scott is like my spirit animal politician, right? This super tall, bearded, wearing glasses, wonky, awkward politician. Like if there's if, if he does well, there's like hope for me in this world in some way. And yet from the reports I was getting, the mood inside was just sort of like, well, this is great for Scott, but the rep- public is gone and just drinking inside the bus seemed like a more fun thing to do um but on a lighter note i saw scott a couple days ago and i asked him like what committees he wants to join everything else and so you know he's like very much planning for what he's going to do when he gets to sacramento and i think that the party is going to have a great ally there so again scott congratulations and thank you to all of our uh, yimby volunteers that helped made his victory possible yeah, and he also came out um, to, we had sort of a post-mortem the day after the election where we sat around drinking for like eight hours. It was pretty fun. I mean, you know, as fun as a wake can be, you know, from three to 11. And Scott came by for like two hours and ate ice cream. And, you know, which is a pretty fun thing to say, you know, a state senator is now coming out and hanging out at the clubhouse eating ice cream with us and drinking a lot of booze he didn't drink anything let me also say i was drinking i was drinking very heavily uh, and he was a very put together man yeah i thought that we were gonna have a different world but we had the same world so that was like like in a state of shock for a little while but things are kind of equalizing um but yeah locally we had actually a lot of great wins and the most frustrating thing about election night was that I wanted to be celebrating because locally we did great. So DHLM all lost. We won, obviously, at the state Senate level. And we have a moderate majority back on our board of supervisors. Yeah. And I think also, you know, we, we had a couple little losses uh, on the Yimby Slate card. Um, you know, too bad about youth voting in local elections. We really like those guys. You know, on a personal level, they were using our space to do phone banking. And they were just really fantastic people working for that. Um, you know, young people. Um, you know, we were really disappointed about the sales tax that was going to fund additional homeless and transportation services failing. Yeah, you know, I thought the results for the the sales tax, but and then for the set aside, right? So there's there's J and K. One's the actual tax. One's the thing that says where the tax is going to go. And I thought it was the most San Francisco, California moment where San Franciscans overwhelmingly rejected the tax, but overwhelmingly supported the things that the tax was going to fund. It's like, you know, about, you know, having cake, eating it, not, you know, I don't really quite this. I'm sorry, this metaphor doesn't actually work, but it really was illustrative to me about a certain type of 
you know, positional liberalism that San Francisco is famous for, where we say that we care about the homeless, we say that we care about transportation, as long as some other asshole is paying for it. I feel like I want to be a little bit more fair to the voters, though, because uh, the tax didn't say anything about it being connected um, to the benefits. So you're like paging through and there and I mean, Jay was called set aside. So Jay actually had in the name the implication that it was a tax. And then when you got to the sales tax, it was just like sales tax. Why would you say yes for a sales tax? Why'd they write it like that? Well, they had to write it like that it, um, in order so they only needed 50 oh, percent yeah. in order so that they didn't need two thirds because of our favorite state proposition, 1970s Prop 13. Um, that like so. OK, fine. Maybe I'm being a little bit harsh here. That said, all of the campaigning for J&K was for J&K. They were really trying to link the like the the advocates were trying to link them in the public's mind because they were of a piece like you don't get more funding for homeless if you don't raise money to, 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 to fund more uh, money for uh, homeless services and uh, transportation upgrades. There's another piece of this that was who was opposing the sales tax. Yes, it was very interesting to watch Aaron Peskin do this weird thing where and people are defending him right now because they're like, oh, well, all he did was be the person on the ballot opposing in the ballot books, the official opposition to the sales tax. And it was like, uh, excuse me, <laughs> like they're like, he didn't campaign against it. <laughs> he just wrote the opposition that literally everyone received. I know we're supposed to be having this like transcendent moment of unity in California but like that was that was pretty bad yeah so now so when he's against something somehow he's not responsible or convincing anybody of anything but when he's for something he gets things done funny actually sounds familiar have did you guys see the Facebook news Facebook is in there's a New York Times article about it too where like more stuff came out all these senior management at Facebook are like very uncomfortable with the role that they know Facebook played there there you should see the New York Times article it's amazing because it's all this leaked stuff and they're all like mad at Mark Zuckerberg for being delusional because he's trying literally to argue that Facebook doesn't um, get people to come out to vote or buy things but that it somehow didn't affect the election. Well, and the thing is, like, Facebook has sponsored research, which shows just that they do, right? So, I mean, like, they're taking credit for, you know, other popular democratic uprisings elsewhere, saying Facebook made this happen. And yet here, with fascism rising in the United States, they're like, oh, we don't have anything to do with that. Um, all right. But, you know, getting back, though, to, to like, the, the awfulness of Aaron Peskin. And, yeah, fine. You know, I'm, like, willing to entertain some, like, kumbaya-ness with no, other progressives of good mind. Um, I'm not with, with Aaron Peskin either. No, but, like, this just shows, though, how tribal politics works like Sonia is right there were a number of quote-unquote progressives Aaron Peskin supporters on Twitter really twisting themselves into knots saying how like well of course they supported raising the sales tax because they supported increasing services for homeless folks and for uh, transportation improvements but that I mean Aaron only wrote the official opposition he didn't really campaign for it that didn't really convince anybody I mean it's like what like who are you joking here but you know like uh, to me, though, th this like really shows that, you know, Aaron Peskin is playing his supporters for a bunch of chumps. Like what he's doing right here is he's campaigning for the broader San Francisco electorate. The he, but yeah, he's, you know, started running for mayor um, or some other uh, citywide office. He knows that. Ta you know, taxes aren't popular. So he gets to see this, you know, now he's an older, wise man. He gets to be fiscally responsible. And yet his base who provides him with like 
the reason that he got elected in the first place with, with all of those awesome volunteer hours are like, oh, yeah, I know he said this thing and was the official person for this thing, but he doesn't really believe that or really have any influence that, over that it. sounds so familiar, too. I feel like we've heard that this season, too. With all these people being like, he's a racist. I mean, Trump. and But, you know, he doesn't really mean it. It was very disappointing i mean you know i think of san francisco you know we are this like liberal bastion watching san francisco go yes on the tents and no on the funding for homeless people so it was like this kind of double whammy of saying we want to do something to police the tents but we're not actually going to do any funding in order to help those people in those tents that was really disappointing we had a lot of other wins and so i don't want to be too demoralized I, i can have enough demoralization about our national catastrophe catastrophe um but it was it was a bit demoralizing to watch that happen yeah I, you know and, and again for all of our yimby volunteers um we mostly won i mean it, it really was mostly a good night for san francisco for the things that we cared about i gotta say scott won by more than i thought he was i mean i really thought this was going to be a you know more or less 50 50 race and you know who was going to win if someone asked me? It's like, you know, flip a coin. I mean, I, I I really don't know. I was very much rooting for Scott, but I was certainly not swayed that he was going to win by the margin that he did win by. And I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that. And I think that Yimbies can take a lot of credit uh, for that. Because, like, you know, we were the people who were, you know, out saying stuff on social media because um, like, clearly Facebook actually can move elections, as we recently described, um, as well as knocking on doors, calling numbers, talking to our friends, like doing all the, the, the hard work that is campaigning. Yeah. And I would say on top of that, you know, it's a symbolic win, you know, more than anything. I think, you know, what happens at the Board of Supervisors is one of the things that matters the most for our local policies. Um, having somebody in the state Senate is going to be great for also us staying on top of all of the legislation that we want to move forward at a state level. But, um, you know, what we focus a lot on is, you know, the Board of Supervisors, which way it's going to go. And so for that, keeping Scott didn't have, wasn't the worst thing, right? If he had lost, that would have meant we get to keep him on the Board of Supervisors. But it's a very big symbolic win for saying you can be very vocally pro-housing and you can really succeed in the city. He put his neck out more than anyone else for any race to be advocating for housing. I'm going to say it's a bit more than symbolic because, you know, part of what Scott really believes, like what the Yibby Party believes, is that while we do need to be building more in San Francisco, we need to be building more in every neighborhood— this is a regional crisis. It needs a regional solution. Indeed, it needs a statewide solution. And he like very much believed this. And he's the kind of person who was going to put through the effort to work with stakeholders to try to get legislation through Sacramento to more meaningfully address this at a regional or statewide scale. Um, and of course, like the exact same thing with transportation. I mean, he's like the biggest ally of public transit on the Board of Supervisors right now, and he'll be a huge ally for us in Sacramento. Upcoming next year, like we actually can raise property taxes in San Francisco. Um, San Francisco has authorized but unused debt that it can sell. Um, But there's kind of an informal um, political agreement that as long as we don't raise uh, property taxes, that when old bonds expire, um, homeowners will vote to replace them. So, but you know, what's crazy is that we really have, what, 70% renters and only growing. So we should be able to just straight up outvote homeowners. But, you know, we have to get organized. It's, it's up to you guys. 
So I want to pivot to all of the other races so we can just sort of run down who won, who lost. So State Senate, Scott Wiener, he won. Marjan Philhauer, she lost to Sandra Feuer, who really did run a, a quite vocally anti-new housing campaign. Um, it was really, you know, the choice was pretty stark. She, she branded herself as a progressive, um, but she was very clear that she was for preserving the Richmond. And, and their Tagline was the Richmond's not for sale, which is going to make the Richmond more expensive, um, which is <laughs> that's the problem. It's not for sale at any price or maybe for an extremely high price. And that's the th- that's the whole point of what we're against. Um, London Breed won her race. Yes. Against uh, Dean Preston, uh, who was the tenants union's choice uh, and he really was a strong it, it, that was a pretty funny race because he was a white wealthy middle-aged homeowner uh trying to tell bought his house with cash trying to paint a uh black woman who grew up in public housing as being anti-housing as being anti-renter and she is a renter so that was a pretty freaking ballsy move on his part yeah i mean like the fact of the matter is like dean preston is just this insanely rich from family money i guess uh carpetbagger oh wait no i think it was the first tech boom in the 90s he made a pretty penny that's how he paid eight hundred thousand dollars cash for his house in in what is it near alamo square yeah so i mean I, i i looked at his financial disclosure forms i mean like the guy has millions in tech stocks he owns forest land under the California. I mean, he has a very well diversified portfolio, like let's and a very well portfolio. But I mean, that's the thing. Like he he paid cash for a home, like literally kitty corner to the to the painted ladies on Alamo Square, and this guy is campaigning as if he were like the man of the people, the voice, the renters. Like you were no FDR. Like where the fuck do you get off? Like I am totally cool with rich allies who like like want to be on the side of renters, but you are not that. This is the bizarreness of San Francisco, that our local progressive party didn't think there was anything weird about a guy running as a progressive. Like, there's nothing that Dean could have done that's more progressive than being a black woman in power. Like, nothing. And none of them thought that was weird. Okay, on to the next one. Um, Joel Angardio, uh, who we love, uh, lost his race to incumbent Norman Yee. I think everybody knew that that was going to happen. Um, but uh, Norman Yee will sort of plod on at the Board of Supervisors. That's sort of his MO. So that's right. I mean, none of us thought that Joel had any chance, but we wanted to support him because he's been about as pro-housing as you can be in, in a District 7. That said, though, what did surprise a lot of people is he got second place. Ben Matranga is, you know, had all sorts of backing from both the so-called moderate coalition and from a lot of uh, higher level uh, de- uh, Democratic uh, uh, Party folks. And Joel beat him. It was great. I'm so excited for Joel. Then we've got uh, Josh Arce, who... Uh, <laughs> you're going to smoke that? Can I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Look, weed's legal, guys. Weed's legal? <laughs> okay. Uh, Josh Arce, who lost his race to Hillary Ronan, who 
you know, was was the chosen from uh, the current supervisor Campos, um, and who I would say they both kind of ran a little bit mealy mouthed campaigns. Though I like Josh, and and we endorsed him, I would say that it wasn't, um, despite a lot of efforts to make it a a clear choice between good and evil. I think it was a little bit unclear what the issues in that district really were. Yeah, you know. I like when I was out canvassing in the mission, I, I spoke with one woman who wasn't on my canvas list, but her door was open and she just had to tell me why she was supporting Hillary. And I, and I thought, like, OK, sure, I'll I'll, I'll I'll listen for a little bit. But I got doors to knock on and how Hillary's office was vandalized. The way that Josh handled that and his campaign handled that was not the best. And she was just furious at the way the Arce campaign handled that issue. And, you know, she told me that she thinks that like many others felt the same way, which might go some way to explaining the sort of lopsided result. Now, I mean, I have no idea like whether or not that that matters or not. I will say the frustrating thing about this race as a recently displaced uh, mission resident is that this continues the decade-long tradition of the mission being far and away the largest neighborhood in District 9, but c- being ruled by outsiders. Bernal Hill has con- you know, more or less controlled District 9 politics forever. That's where all the, like, all the progressives live in Hills, by the way. Like, they live in the, you know, historically, the, the progressives, yes. I mean, all like the, the viewist, um, you know, I mean, look, I think they're reactionaries, but, you know, fine. They identify as progressives. But... Hillary moved to what Portola or something like in the past like nine months ago or you know I don't even know exactly but she wasn't even in the district she moved in the district just so she could run and she could win and it's not the mission but again it's these sort of you know so-called progressives who love talking about local control but keep on moving people into districts in order so they can win just like which we're not talking about right now but can later Cindy Wu in district six who after Jane is termed out the so-called progressives are going to run. Um, yeah, but guys, I just moved to District 6. So anyone can do this trick. Okay, but they moved her specifically so that she could be appointed in case of J1. Now, all right, so are we starting Are we starting the Sonia 2020 campaign right now? Is, is that what this is? No, we're not starting right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but wait, I want to talk about Josh and Hillary. So yes, I think that you were right, or you were right. Like Hillary promised to build 5,000 homes and Josh promised to build a BART station. So they're both like promising awesome stuff that everyone knows neither could do. And so, yeah, it was like really hard to decide between them in some sense. But I think the real thing, I love Josh. I respect him so much and I think he's so smart. And he got really unlucky because how are you going to run against someone named Hillary right now? Like literally for an entire year, voters were like, vote Hillary, vote Hillary, vote Hillary. I mean, name recognition is strong. So the next one is Asha Safai in District 11, um, who won his race. He is has not been a very strong vocal pro-housing person. We can expect him to be marginally more pro-housing than Kim Alvarenga. But he's, you know, he's in the he's in the camp. He's in the moderate camp. Uh, but, you know, he does represent a fairly anti-housing district. And so, you know, he's going to be a little bit on the fringe yeah I don't know I'm actually really curious about District 11 and you know to hear Chris Corgis tell it it's actually kind of they they have like too many empty storefronts they have lots that they like want to be developed okay well Chris Corgis runs the let's get more storefronts filled in District 11 group so like I mean or whatever the mayor's office on doing that so I mean I love Chris Corgis don't get me wrong I hope Chris Corgis listens to this podcast (laughs) 
<laughs> but I don't know. I mean, Chris Corgas, oh my God, if I hear him say the fucking Excelsior one more time, like. <laughs> you might move there. You might move there. Is that what you're going <laughs> to. Yeah. Excelsior. <laughs> Um, all right. So, but Asha Safai, um, at the very least he will be, um, you know, pro transportation. And that also means for all the techies out there, pro shuttle buses, uh, which is something I think a lot of people were having a lot of anxiety about. Um, next on our list is Latifah Simon, uh, who was always going to win. She was just like, she's kick ass and she appeals to a wide group of people. And she was endorsed by almost everyone. She's great. She won. We look forward to her rule. <laughs> it is. She's kind of an amazing politician. Um, and then we have um, one of our favorites who did not quite make the cut, Gwyneth Borden, who lost to Bevan Dufty. You know, that we all know that we knew that was going to happen. Bevan Dufty has been a supervisor before, and so this was kind of inevitable. Um, but I think Gwyneth ran a great campaign. She sort of entered late just because she felt like somebody needed to oppose Bevan and, and really be uh, a little bit of a, a strong opposition to his vision. And, and I personally hope that Gwyneth does a lot more. I think she is a really freaking smart, powerful woman who is capable of doing a a lot in this city I think I mean I've literally everything she says right after every sentence I go yes yes that's right Gwyneth yes Um, and then um, our love, Paul Henderson, also lost to Victor Huang. Um, you know, this was a case of two really qualified candidates, um, you know, and, and they neither one went negative. It was kind of a very sweet campaign for Judge, which, I, you know, is, I guess, exactly what you one would hope for Judge. Um, and, and we love Paul, and but he didn't quite make it. Victor is going to be the new judge and you know we wish him well on the ballot propositions the ones you know there's you know public school bonds one city college one uh parcel tax the affordable housing loans passed uh, and again we defeated dhl and m those all went down um city responsibility for street trees that's great my landlord i don't have to bug him about how there are definitely rats living in our tree we are really sad about youth voting in local elections yeah, that really is a, is a sad one, um, especially given that the measure to allow non-citizen uh, parents vote in school board elections like that, that passed, which I absolutely supported. But that's sort of like surprising thing to me, that folks were, were willing to extend the franchise uh, to adults who are not citizens, but not to 16 and 17-year-olds. And like, like the only 16 or 17-year-old is going to vote are those who are like civic dorks they're motivated they care like we should be like encouraging this and you know the fact of the matter is like there is no maximum voting age there you know the 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 idea that uh 16 and 17 year olds are less able to make independent smart decisions about who should represent them um than you know 98 year olds i i think is ridiculous yeah i'm not surprised at all i mean people are more prejudiced towards kids than almost any other thing that is something I noticed as a teenager, you might imagine. It was very hard to be a teenager. Anyway, I don't know. I would love to try it again. If we, I don't, Can the Board of Supervisors do this? Could we just try to do it this year or something? That's a great question, and we should really figure that out if this needs to be a ballot prop or if the Board of Supervisors could just extend the franchise. Like They probably wouldn't do so after a ballot prop just lost because that would be seen as violating the will of the people. That said, look, I, I take your point. You're right. I mean... 
As someone who frequently talks about the generational aspects to housing politics, uh, I'm very aware that the the old tends to hate the young. Uh, you know, hashtag not all old people, right? I mean, not a lot of you are great, but you know the the way that um, uh, tax and housing policy and all sorts of other policies work in California, um, it's just a generational transfer of wealth, and it's disgusting. So, you know, DHL and M, no restrictions on vacancy appointments and no Campos's job of public advocate. So I'd like to take this opportunity. David, if you're listening, (laughs) you're going to be out of work soon. So Sony and I run the California Renters Legal Advocacy and Education Fund. Sony doesn't want to hire you, but we have a whole board and we would more than happy give... We'd be more than happy to give your application a, a fair hearing. Um, we're, we're hoping to hire an attorney who is going to be representing tenants. Um, you know, you have Spanish language fluency. That's a big plus. Uh, so, you know, please submit your application. Brian at CarlaEF.org. Thank you, David. <laughs> Uh, so DHL and M. So the the Muni is going to continue to function. That's L. We're very happy about that one. Um, and we're not going to have another goddamn commission, which is great. Um, we also passed the police oversight, uh, which is great. That, that is was Proposition G. That, that is a new commission, but it's one we want. Yeah, and, you know, and someone asked me like to explain. It's like, wait a minute. If you're all for making, um, you know, doing away with much of the bureaucracy, like, how do you square that with, with your support for things like uh, civilian oversight committees? Well, look, I, I really yeah, that? you know, yeah, That's someone awesome. really did ask me this, and I think it's a fair question. I also think that police are just categorically different than right. other sectors of public right. employees and other like government functions. They have guns, and they have, you know, they're able to kill people. Under the, the the color of law, um, the, like all like the the more that we can provide oversight for police, the better. Yeah, yeah. Housing is good. It's a good thing, and producing housing is good. So I feel like we don't need to supervise it that much. Yeah. We can like argue for reduced regulation when you're p- building something good, but police, yeah, are potentially very terrifying. So we should watch them. I'm sorry, but anybody the the evidence is clearly in that. The police department has fundamentally lost the trust of the people. And I think whether it had it in the first place is also a valid question. But I think we are certainly at a point um, in, in our society where there are luckily enough cameras already running around. I mean, we have a massive amount of evidence uh, that the San Francisco Police Department and the Oakland Police Department, both of whom who have been under quite a lot of recent scandal, have fundamentally lost the uh, trust of the people. And if we're going to really rebuild that relationship, we need a massive amount of oversight. I, I don't think there is too much oversight that can be had. And the fact that the Police Officers Association was fighting against the uh, cameras, body cameras, you know, what do you have to hide? I I really did not care for that. You you know, this is a a little out of the YMB party wheelhouse in some ways, but it's something that, you know, uh, Laura, Sonny, and I all very much care about. In fact, when uh, Laura and I went to the Board of Supervisors uh, some weeks ago to testify on behalf of of a Brisbane, um, you know, we were told that we couldn't and that they were only taking comments about the police commission. So then like both of us gave comments really, like, you know, in support of the study taking this seriously. And 
you know, I had I didn't prepare. I don't have any prepared remarks. I was going to be super eloquent about Brisbane, though. Like rest assured. Uh, but like when it comes to the plea, you know, I just told two very personal stories. Uh, one of a friend of mine, another of a friend of a friend. One was shot by police um, with a beanbag pellet uh, during the World Series game, and this friend is a dorky mathematician who wasn't doing anything, doesn't really care about sports, was just uh, walking home on the mission, uh, but he's black. So that was maybe enough to uh, elicit their suspicion. Um, another was performing a cop watch. Um, so he was trying to tape with his camera uh, police who had uh, lined up a number of Latino men on the mission, and they told him, move back. He's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm moving back, but if I go all the way where you're telling me to go, my camera can't see you, and I, I do have a right to do this. They didn't like his answer, and then they just beat the hell out of him. In fact, they beat him into a coma. Um, and then they charged him with assault after that. Evidently, um, his head and chest assaulted their feet and boots. I mean, like, they, like, like this is the reality in San Francisco for a, a lot of people. And this guy was also black. Um, you know, this is like the reality for many of, of our neighbors. And, you know, the, we really do need increased oversight of the police. And that passed. So we can be glad about that. Yeah. Malia Cohen sponsored that. She's great. If you only tune in to this podcast for the petty stuff in local politics, uh, at that same hearing, I have taken actually a great deal of joy that every time I come up to give public comment now, Aaron Peskin runs over to London Breed's elbow in order to be able to uh, call an objection that I'm speaking out of turn. Yes, yes. And so, and I can tell that, I mean, I, I personally, I enjoy the feeling that I am pissing him off. And then he feels the need to run up there and bring down the gavel at any excuse because I don't know Robert's rules of order. And so he knows he can get me. Laura, A plus job, although I've really got to give props to Sonia here because at one meeting where you were calling Supervisor Peskin Aaron, Aaron, and then he objected. Aaron was furious and insisted on being called the supervisor. And then Sonia was like, Supervisor Peskin, supervisor this. I mean, just really overly dramatic to. Dramatic. I was like, I ro- I literally rolled my eyes and I was like, okay, supervisor, blah blah blah. And then I continued talking shit about him. I mean, really, the worst thing I was saying was not that I didn't call him supervisor. It seemed pretty obvious to me, and I think everyone else in the room, like what exactly you were doing. But all right. I just I knew that I was kind of making it in local politics when uh, every time I got up to speak at the D Triple C, Campos would get up and leave the room, and I was like, oh, can't handle the heat, you know, get out of the kitchen. I, you know. It's the little things that keep us going. (laughs) All right, so moving on. Non-citizens voting and school board elections, that did pass. And that was great. Um, I think that really says, you know, I would say if anything speaks against Trump, you know, that we passed, this was the one that really said the most about San Francisco. That sounds actually really fun. Like, maybe this is a thing. I think right now people are like, what the fuck are we going to do? How do we, or how exactly do you organize against Trump? Maybe the right thing to do is to try to get non-citizen voting passed you know, everywhere and like start like write sample, um, you know, legislation and, you know, 
So I actually looked into this very briefly, and this started after I was, you know, canvassing for the MB party, and I, I spoke with so many people who answered in accented English, whether they're from Guatemala or Norway or China or wherever, uh, that they weren't citizens and they couldn't vote. And yeah, this is so, so many of our neighbors have effectively no say in, like, land use decisions and all sorts of other decisions that, that affect their daily lives. I looked into it, and you know, like it is, it's in the California Constitution. Like non-citizens can't vote, uh, but but that but that could. My understanding is for uh, local races. I think that could be changed. Although I haven't actually asked a real attorney about this, but I would love to amend. You know, like run a statewide ballot prop that just gave localities. Um, the freedom to enfranchise citizens for local races if it passed at like a local uh, ballot initiative. Yeah, there's all kinds of localities. You know, there's there's everything from like HOAs, you know, school board, you know, community college district, and they all have slightly different rules. So the other thing to do is to figure out which ones do allow um, non-citizen voting and then kind of systematically get people to organize and get it done throughout the state. <clears throat> And I, I'm I've become bigger and bigger on the, the the symbolic things that we need to be doing in the face of Trump. I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, you know, everyone's protesting in the blue cities, and it doesn't really matter." And I think that's just totally wrong. I'm I'm going to quote Star Trek as I often like to do in times like this: <laughs> "Evil must be opposed." And it doesn't really matter if you're doing it in a symbolic way because you're hopefully these people are also going to do it in all the ways that, you know, the ACLU is going to be really mattering and and all the other ways. I, I, this should be a rallying call. You know, this is the first thing you do, not the last thing you do. But I do think it's important to have these kinds of symbolic standing in opposition to an evil ideology. Yeah, definitely. I watched the Trump interview on 60 Minutes tonight and everybody listening has to watch it. You have to watch it. And also just go ahead and look for like hashtag 60 Minutes because this is something that everybody in America watched, you know, and then everybody talked about on Twitter. So one of the things was because these uh, protests exist, the interviewer asked Trump, do you think you should go reassure people? Do you know why people are so mad? And he denied that he had seen them. He was like, oh, I don't realize. And then they were like, well, do you know about, like, the beating people up and the, like, rise in hate incidents? And what do you say to people doing that? And he was like, I tell them they shouldn't do that. That's a terrible way to act. And that's pathetic. And uh, that would be our dictator in chief. She wouldn't have had even the reason to go down that conversation if those things weren't happening. You know what I mean? And that's when, when I was watching that, I was like, oh, this is the role these play. They are part of the public conversation. And just to be clear, like those things like that are happening, like the protests, like the fact that people are out there. And I heard on Twitter 100,000 marks in L.A. That's a number that's too big to fact check. So I'm just going to like leave it there. Uh, but it did look like a very big march. And, you know, I, I live in downtown Oakland now and I've, you know, in, you know, I've you know, participated in some marches. I've been caught in others. I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. I was trying to get home, but I'm just kind of like, you know, hang out and participate in this for a little while as these 8,000 people uh, make their way past my block. And in fact, on my way to the to the Yimby Clubhouse uh, tonight, I saw none other than Laura Clark at the front of an anti-Trump protest walking down Market Street. In my Kamala Harris t-shirt, because I'm going to start the campaign right now, Kamala Harris 2020. Yes, you heard it. Probably not here first, because a lot of people are talking about it. 
Yeah, the only thing, I'm really excited about this, or if anybody knows a similarly epic candidate like in Ohio or Pennsylvania. Because those are places that went for Obama and then went for Trump. And so I want to win them back. And one thing I'll, I'll just say that's not at cross purposes to either these uh, statements is, well, I think, you know, candidate recruitment for the president is obviously a, a very important thing to do. Um, look, you know, you know, part of the what we're really trying to do at the Yimby movement is just to not get people to just, you know, only conceive of the presidency as where politics happened. The vast majority of politics happens at the local level. The, I mean, Trump is a huge exception, but the most people who get to become president or get to become senators, they start out at the local level. Uh, Tim Kaine, the almost vice president, you know, I think has held almost every elective office there is, um, but then, you know, succeeded quickly up the ranks from, you know, city council member, mayor, senator, and a governor and a bunch in between. And I go further than that. I mean, I'm I'm worried about the bench starting, you know, so we're now starting to, we, we had a pretty big win in Palo Alto, right? We had, the Palo Alto is a fantastic thing where we switch from the people who are calling themselves the residentialists, which I just think that's a title that really grates on me because it's like, you're the residentialist, but you're opposed to creating more residencies like I freaking hate you um but to a pro-growth majority now so five people now saying we need more housing fundamentally in Palo Alto which is a fantastic win but our bench throughout the Bay Area is really thin and so we need to be starting to nurture candidates that's sort of the next step in what the the whole Yimby movement is going to be about we're already having these uh, conversations in the East Bay. I mean, I, I've we're going to have two young Yimbies running in a Berkeley special election early next year, and we're going to need everyone's help with this. Um, uh, and also, there are folks in Oakland who have expressed their interest in running for office as well. We need to be doing a better job in San Francisco of identifying folks be- before they hold office but that we think would be excellent candidates and then putting them in positions where when a an appropriate seat opens up they'll be well positioned to run and to win. I mean this is the classic like we were joking earlier Cindy Wu moving to District 6. She moved to District 6 and is prepared to be appointed and then eventually to run. And we need to be thinking like that. We need to be thinking about who are our District 5 candidates. You know, you do odds and then evens, odds and then evens. And so we need to be thinking who's in that district and then what are they doing over the next 2 years to get ready to run for office. That means joining clubs that means getting active in that community that means really going around and talking to the people in that district and and forming a base and figuring out what the most important issues to the people in that district are there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done and that only gets done by people who decide multiple years in advance that they want to be running for these uh, offices so that's absolutely right. But Laura, as you know, because we were doing this um, at your home, we, we've already been thinking about this, right? I mean, like been mapping out, okay, these are the, all the seats that are opening up in X years who are possible people that uh, could be running and what can we do to help them out in the meantime? So look, we're already thinking about this. That said, we don't know everything. If you want to run, if you're listening, get in touch with us. If you know someone who you think would be a good candidate for something, even if you don't know what it would be, get in touch with us. Yeah. I mean, I'm really thinking I'm I'm mad about this right now because, you know, in the moderate party, there's still debate going on right now about who would be appoint, who is going to be appointed to Scott Weiner's seat. And, 
you know, honestly, that decision should have been made a year ago. And, and that person should have been getting themselves ready a year ago. And, and there, you know, there are people who want it. Yes. But you know, we need to have a deep bench of people who are working for this, you know, f- over the next two years, you know, 2018 is going to come up on us faster than you think. That's a fair point. Although I guess we also just could take the, pro- the so-called progressive angle and just cast our nets nationally and find out what other rich carpetbagger is, is going to move <laughs> to a district that, that, that can then uh, run. So, you know, either way works. All right, so we'll keep running down the list. Um, so non-citizens voting, that passed. Um, the development in Candlestick Point, Hunter's Point, uh, that passed. Uh, Prop P that we had so much controversy about, that did not pass. That was not unexpected. Then what was a little bit you know, controversial uh, was Q, and that was the prohibiting tents on sidewalks that doesn't technically come into effect until there are beds available in shelters, of which there are not. Um, but I think that was a little bit disappointing for us. The new homeless czar was pretty opposed to that, and I, I take his word on most things related to homelessness. The neighborhood crime unit, that did not pass. The allocation of the hotel tax, that needed two-thirds, so that did not pass. The restriction gifts on lobbyists did pass. Everyone loves to hate on lobbyists. Sonia had to step out of the conversation. If she were here, I feel pretty confident that she would uh, go on a a rant about citizen lobbyists and how the the general hatred of lobbyists is really misplaced. These are people, like, doing the work of politics. You know, like, look, I mean, there's there's a difference between, you know, those who are, you know, just paid by evil interest to advocate on things that they don't even believe in order to draw an obscenely large paycheck. That's like the image of a lobbyist that we have in our popular culture. And those people are real. They're what most Congress people do after after they leave Congress. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of people who do things that are lobbying-like activities that do get caught under this, you know, super, this huge web of onerous regulations who are really you know they're spending what three hundred dollars of their their and their friends money in order to you know print some slate cards they came up with you know on their own computer and print it at home and then you know cut with scissors right i mean like all sorts of very amateur operations do you get uh, caught up in these type of uh, rules as well yeah i would say for this one it was kind of a you know no smaller like don't buy you're not allowed to buy lunch kind of that was kind of the level we were at and as a grassroots organizer I'm not mad that I don't have to buy lunch when I, if I happen to go out and get lunch with someone who's an elected official, I, uh, there's no question of who gets what bill. We are splitting it. Okay. There's no, like, (laughs) I. So, like, that's a fair point. For a group like ours, then, all right, then great. Because, like, we don't really have the money to be buying everyone lunch anyways. Um, But it, it, it could be an issue for others. Talk about, I want to talk about how offended I was by the dehumanization um, during Trump's speech today. No, I'm serious. First they came for the lobbyists. You should have heard him talking about them. He seriously was like, they're not human. And I was like, no one should be comfortable with this. No one. He has lobbyists on his transition team. This that is like total. Was, that, like, was, that was amazing. That was the funniest part is that like, that's what the interviewer kept saying. He's, she was like, your transition team is 100% lobbyists. And he was like, yeah, but that's all there is down there. It's DC. It's full of lobbyists. He's like, they know how the government works. It's like you literally could have hired someone from anywhere in the country. And you're like, ah, what an 
idiot. I mean, this is the thing. It's like when you have an idiot in charge who doesn't know shit about shit, this is what happens. I mean, I don't even think most of his horrible things that he's going to do are going to be based on him deliberately doing things. It's going to be on the fact that he is an ignorant fuck. Okay, so everything's broke wide open because the Tea Party, some of his Tea Party people are furious that he's putting in insiders and they're like, no, we need... You know more outsiders, and they have to follow, They have to fill like nine thousand jobs in nine weeks or something. Yeah, evidently they were really confused about that. Where the Trump team was like, "Wait a minute, we have to fill how many jobs?" And so now they have some websites. So go apply. Uh, I guess like be a mole, maybe. I mean, I don't know. Like if you don't want to be a collaborationist, that's a really fine position. But yeah. hashtag this is our reality. You do. It turns out you do have to decide whether you're going to collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> Not just in books. <laughs> I mean, so speaking you know, on the breaking things wide open, um, the one thing that I've heard for California that is kind of exciting about this is like under the assumption that the federal government kind of fundamentally breaks in some way and we stop having federal tax dollars really coming into the state, maybe this makes Prop 13 reform possible because we're going to have to have tax dollars coming from somewhere and we're going to have to admit that we need to start taxing wealth again and especially corporations who are property owners. That, that There's a real potential here to, to really do something dramatic that was not possible under the previous political reality. I really hope so, although certainly the necessity doesn't always bring about uh, the, the the correct policy. I, I was very heartened to read uh, Rendon and Adelion, the uh, leaders of the Assembly and, and the Senate, um, issued like a, a very powerful statement about California values and and, and and all the rest. And I agree with that. Uh, state policy making just got a lot more important, which is why it's great that we have Scott in the Senate. But it just made our work that much more. Laura just finished my wine. I, I just can't believe what I just witnessed. Um, I'm I had the microphone. I, I can't drink it at this very moment. All right. It makes the kind of work that we do all the more important. So like we talk about building the San Francisco of tomorrow, like building a San Francisco for everyone, building an, in, an inclusive uh, place where all different types of people uh, can afford to be here. And that's all correct, but it just got more real. There are all sorts of folks who are going to want to move to a you know, genuinely progressive, like little P place um, in order to feel safer. While, you know, what does Trump's America mean for me this is you know a question a lot of folks have been asking well i mean for me i'm a you know a straight cis white guy in oakland i'm 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 really not too concerned for myself um but from speaking with say queer friends who live elsewhere people are worried and the fact that capital p progressives have in fact erected a wall around the bay area of high housing costs this is something that we need to smash we need to build a Bay Area um, for refugees from Trump's America. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried because I know that I am not capable of keeping my mouth shut, even if I do get freed for my life. I'm just not the kind of person who can shut up. Um, so, you know, we're going to have a long four years. I mean, with someone who has clearly demonstrated that they don't have any interest in freedom of speech or other constitutionally important things. You know, I think this is going to be a, a real sort of moment where people stand and oppose hatred or go with unity, which I think is a really sinister thing that people have been calling for. So just to run kind of through the rest of the ballot, 
Um, we're down to T, so it's not much more. Uh, Prop U, the subsidized housing for middle income, where we were going to redistribute, that did not pass. Uh, we were pleased about that. The sugar sweetened beverage tax, despite spending, what was the final count? Like $21 million. So bye-bye, sugar sweet. Well, it's just a little, a very small tax on sugar sweetened beverage. They will definitely still be around. The real estate transfer tax did pass, um, so it'll be a little bit more expensive to sell really, really expensive things. And Proposition X, uh, the rebuilding urban manufacturing space, that did pass, uh, which was a loss for us. That's a really bad one. But luckily, the BART bond did pass, and so we were pleased about that. Um, and then the other biggest one at the state level was the statewide approval for all local revenue bonds. That did not pass, and we were really pleased about that. And we were going to talk about Trump at this point, but I feel like we've kind of talked about a lot of things about Trump. So instead, we're going to talk about uh, Carla and all of the upcoming uh, really incredible lawsuits that are going forward. As, as I'm quoted in the press as saying, my favorite thing we do is suing sanctions testimonious limousine liberals we're working on that um and we, we can't uh, talk about exactly everything that we're working on right now but yeah. w what we can give an, uh, an update about though is something that we've been keeping under wraps for a little while uh which is our petition that we filed uh, against berkeley for violating the housing Ac accountability act so berkeley so a developer proposed to build uh, three single-family homes on a plot of land that was zoned for it. It complied with all objective zoning standards in the general plan. Um, and the neighbors really were upset about it. They were really, really angry. How dare you put three homes on this greedy developer who was actually going to live in one of the homes himself? Um, th th this is outrageous. The, the, the woman who was leading the charge um, was an old white woman who bought her home, I don't know, 100 years ago. Um, and I, I actually like it's in my Twitter feed. I, I forget the exact numbers, uh, but but she paid very very little for home, and now it's worth very very much. And she ta and she pays very very little in taxes, um, which is you know hashtag Bay Area. Um, so you know sh she's we found out about this because we had some East Bay Forward uh, volunteers uh, who were um, at City Council that day for another issue ended up speaking on this issue when, when they realized it was on the agenda, and then contacted me right away. Uh, I was on the phone. Um, it was some of the the real parties like the very next day i'm like we're gonna get them don't worry and so we filed the petition and the city pretty quickly realized that they had fucked up um and so then uh we had our attorney uh, ryan patterson who is now with us who can speak more about this uh draft a stipulated order which states that they are going to the uh city council will review again the proposed development in light of the Housing Accountability Act and make all of the necessary d determinations that that act requires. Um, and that they, from now on, Berkeley is going to conduct a Housing Accountability Act analysis in every staff report going forward. So that, like that itself is a big victory. They're also going to pay our uh, legal bills. So that was a very nice uh, bonus as well. Oh, so yeah. So now with Berkeley, now we've got ourselves in a position where we have to monitor their, their staff reports. So what happens if they have a staff report without an HAA treatment? This is Ryan Patterson. We just had an off-the-record attorney-client <laughs> discussion, uh, decided not to uh, divulge our entire legal strategy on the podcast. But uh, suffice it to say that we have a number of potential lawsuits in the works. We're looking around San Francisco at various suburbs that are not pulling their weight uh, and creating enough housing. We're also looking at San Francisco itself. 
Uh, I think the state here has voiced very clear policy in favor of creating more housing, especially at the low and moderate income levels. And the Bay Area is not pulling its, uh, its weight on this. So exciting things in the works. Excited to share that with you soon, but let's get it on file with the court first. Uh, would it be a spoil sport? Um, but I think we'll leave it there. Um, and I, I guess I kind of want to have a message of hope for a lot of people. I think that there's um, – it's been a dark week uh, despite some of the local wins. I think a lot of us are feeling – like a national catastrophe has taken place because it has. And the solace that I have taken is that I am surrounded by people who are working exceptionally hard for a a better country and a better place locally. And I know that whether or not, you know, we win individual battles, I am inspired to know that I am surrounded by people who are fighting an incredibly important fight and who will stand and oppose evil. I think that that is a a really wonderful thing to be a part of, and I'm glad that you guys are here with us. Well, thanks, Laura. That was nice. I mean, I'm I'm glad to be here and to be be with everyone as well. I mean, it was was really nice to be able to come to the sort of the Yimby decompression session and, you know, speak with uh, everyone about all the feels. Um, I had sort of an interesting uh first encounter so i was canvassing uh for uh well i was canvassing on behalf of the yimby party um but i was in um the richmond's which is where um uh, is when it happened and there was a, another person there he was uh campaigning on the opposite slate and you know as we were there really it, it wasn't a heavily trafficked polling station so we were mostly talking to each other checking our phones and l- looking as the new york times their little uh dial had Clinton at, you know, 90, you know, like 85% or whatever, 66, 50. I'm like, wait, what the fuck? And then as it's going down and down, I'm like, holy shit, the the bottom is, you know, I mean, it was just like, I wasn't at all prepared for this. And, you know, this other canvasser who we were endorsing pretty much opposite slates. uh, But, you know, it's it's a point that we have to try to make here at the Yimby Party. We really do have a lot of the same values as... A lot of, especially the younger people um, who are seemingly on the opposite side. Uh, this person worked for a nonprofit that was funded by a union that did policy work to enable retail employees to take better control of their scheduling. I mean, like this is like a a type of thing like that. I think is like very important, um, even if it's not directly germane here. So like there was like a a moment of togetherness um, in this sort of overwhelming uh, horror. Um, the other thing I I I just say two things briefly. You know take care of each other it's it's scarier outside of the bay area the other thing too is organize it it's looking like while hillary did win the popular vote by around two million um the democratic vote share uh, has collapsed <laughs> trump did not improve uh offer over mitt romney uh hillary just dramatically underperformed um you know the the only the only way that we are going to create a better more just America um, is if we organize. Politics isn't a thing that you can choose to do or not to do. Politics happens regardless. If you don't participate, that's a political choice you're making, and it is the wrong one. Amen to that. And with that, we will see you next week. 